are finishing our Thriving in Relationship series this morning um, with a message on love. Uh, the passage is 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 12, verse 13. Now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Current. Happy Mother's Day. For those of you guys... Uh, uh, where this is just a big special day, man. This is we want to come alongside you and, and, and celebrate with you. Ice cream is, is a lot of fun. Um, I, you know, we have some great mamas here at Current, uh, and we just want to say uh, you guys mean the world world to us. We can't express it good enough. Uh, we do recognize, as Cindy uh, highlighted for us, that for today, uh, for 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 many today can be actually a day that's a little bit harder. It's filled with a little bit more sadness. There are a few people in my life that's especially the case. So if that's you today, we love you. And we want to walk with you through that. Uh, if you're listening online, we are here for you. We love you. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll get into the text and, and conclude our series today. Father, uh, thank you for the mothers in our lives. Thank you for the amazing gift they are. We recognize that today is a day of sadness and pain for some. Would you minister to hearts in a way that only you can? Where there is pain and brokenness, would you lend your healing touch and bring your comfort? Thank you for the moms in this room and in the community of Current. Would, you, would today be a special day for them? Would they feel loved and cherished? Bless them. Bless their families. And Father, as we turn now to your word, would you open it to our hearts and minds? Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these words, very famous words in the Bible, chances are, even if you didn't grow up reading your Bible, you haven't read your Bible too much, you, you, you probably heard these words. If you've gone to a wedding, it's probably 75% chance you've heard these words. Um, these words uh, uh, are, 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 are well known, but they have a very special place in my heart. These were words that were gifted to Cindy when she was just a little girl, five years old, framed for her by family friends uh, who wanted to gift her something as she and her family were, getting ready, were, were moving across the country. Cindy was born in LA, but she grew up for the most part in New York. So when she was five, these family friends of hers uh, wrote these words out, put them in a frame, and these words hung on the wall for her in much of her childhood. And these words helped lead Cindy to put her faith in Jesus. And along with her, next her brother, and then ultimately her, her dad and her mom. And so these words have a very special place 
in my heart, to say the least. And what's actually fun as a, as a quick side note, those family friends, uh, Uncle, Uncle Frank and Aunt Shirley are still, uh, they've been, they've been uh, uh, heavy supporters, intimate supporters from the very beginning, helping Current get up and going. Uh, they're still very much a part of our, our story. But these, these uh, words have a very special place in my heart, and it's hard to argue against them not being the most excellent of ways, as, as Paul says. Now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. It's hard to argue that. It feels like these words on love are, are what we're meant for. Or more specifically, as we think about it in terms of relationship, what our relationships are meant for, this kind of love. So today, we, continue, we conclude this uh, series we've been going through, Thriving in Relationship, looking at some of the timeless, practical wisdom the Bible has to share in terms of strengthening our relationships, if they're already healthy, or maybe bringing healing into relationships if they are maybe not so much. And as we conclude, boy, this text, this topic of love, not only summarizes everything we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, but probably takes it up a couple of notches. It helps us really think about these things, our relationships. If, if we can get this, we can get all that we've been talking about. Now, in talking about love, we need to start in a place that might not seem most obvious, at least on the surface, and that is define our terms. What do we mean by love? Because in English... In our colloquial speech, it seems to me we can use love for all sorts of things. Like, I love food, I love cars, I love movies, I love people, I love God. What do I mean when I'm saying all those things? It seems to me love is often overused and undervalued in our language uh, because of this, because we don't consciously distinguish all the many nuances of what love actually means. In English, we've got one word for it. We can say, I like something, but that kind of misses the mark. In Greek, in the, in the Bible, there are four words for love. Okay, that's outdoing us by a little bit there. Four words for love. The first word for love that, that I'd like to hi highlight for us is, is the word storge. Storge is uh, what C.S. Lewis calls uh, in, his, in his book, The Four Loves, the love of affection. Okay? Now, this is based on, uh, this relies on the expected and the familiar. I'm not a philosopher like C.S. Lewis, uh, but here's David's version. It seems like this is a love of sentimentality. There's a love of affection of the familiar. It can be anywhere from like the love for a pet to like a painting on the wall. Uh, here's how he describes it. Affection almost slinks or seeps through our lives, he says. It, li it lives with humble, undressed, private things, soft slippers, old clothes, old jokes, the thump of a sleepy dog's tail on the kitchen floor, the sound of a sewing machine, the people with whom you are thrown together in a family, the college, the mess, the ship, the religious house. Uh, the love of a, this love of affection, this storge love, is in the normal day-to-day. -day, and it's actually probably the love we experience most often, but we label the least in, in our English. But that's not the love Paul's talking about. Uh, then there's the love of eros. Okay, you probably can guess what this one is. Romantic love. This is often the love we, we, when we use it in, in, our, in our language to describe like they fell in love together. Uh, it's, there's an attraction there. It can be electric. It's passionate. Uh, the Bible celebrates this love when it comes to sex uh, within the context of marriage. Uh, many people think that the, the Bible is quite prudish when it comes to the topic of sex or, or this sort of love. But if that's how you feel, it's just that you haven't read the Bible, frankly. Uh, it was interesting to me. I, I recently uh, came to the realization that the very end of the creation account, so we're talking on the first couple pages of the Bible, okay? So God creates the world, okay? Let there be light, sun, moon, star, vegetation, land, seas, vegetation, and he's, he's working up the creation. And the very last 
few sentences of the creation account, the pinnacle of the creation account are these. The man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That's what you're thinking. It is. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It's like, there it is, right there in the Bible. Sex within marriage is a gift to be celebrated. It's God's design. It's God's doing. Uh, what's more, I won't go there too much here, but if you read through the book of Solomon, there's, there's such explicit language on the love of Eros there that it can make any of us blush here. And what's crazy is when you go and read that later, because I know some of you are going to do that. When you go and you do that later, it's actually interesting. The English translators tone down the language because they think, oh, it's a little, we can't, it's too risque for the Bible. Which is it? I don't know. Um, that's not the love, this love of Eros that Paul's talking, <coughs> clearly. Uh, then, there's, then there's the love of philia. Uh, philia, is the, philia is the love of friendship. We, of course, know Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's the word for philia, the, this, this love, and the word with brother or sibling. Oftentimes, sibling love can be uh, very uh, like uh, uh, loving in a friendship sort of way. Another way to think of, of philia love is kind of where, where eros is more physically related. Philia is more emotionally related. It's kind of an emotional connection. This is a really important one. Fellas, if I can call out especially, you know, I, I saw a survey uh, not too long ago where they interviewed uh, thousands of folks who went through divorce. And of uh, these many people that were there, they're, they surveyed, they found that the number one reason that the gals who went through divorce, divorce cited for why the divorce happened was for lack of emotional connection, lack of philia love. Um, to put it in the positive, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I love this. Friendship love is born at that moment when one person says to the another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. That says so much, right? It's a love of companionship. It's a love of camaraderie that we're heading in the same direction together, whether that's, you know, for love of board games and we just want to enjoy that together, or it's, or it's a purpose, a calling. Uh, that's, it's a beautiful, nuanced love. But Paul's not talking about philia love. He's not talking about eros love. He's not talking about storge love, as wonderful as these loves are. The word we have translated nine times in 13 verses for love in the English is the greatest love of, of all, it is the word agape. It is agape love. Now, what's fascinating to me about this Greek word is that it was actually not very common in the Greek language. It wasn't commonly used in the Greek language back then. It was inexistent. It had, it had usages, but it wasn't very commonly, commonly used. And yet it shows up all over the place, all of a sudden, in the Greek Bible. Why is that? Because all of these these gospel writers were like, we need a new word. We need to co-opt a word to describe this word that has no other word describing it. The love that God has for us, primarily in Jesus. That we, we need to, to co-opt a word and make it a word. And so that's what they've done with agape. Now, real quickly, it's important to consider agape uh, at the high level before we start to get into kind of the more, you know, we can't lose the forest for the trees, Actually, one, one uh, right, uh, scholar put it this way. He said, examining this chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians 1, a lot of people call the love chapter of the, of the Bible. He says, in, in examining this uh, on love with all its poetic imagery, it can be like dissecting a flower to understand it. If we tear it apart too much, you lose its beauty. So real quickly, high level, what is agape love? Agape love is selfless love. It is self-sacrificing love. It is a love that seeks to put others 
before self. Now, you can all see why I picked this topic on this day to include this series. Uh, there's no greater example in my mind, there's no greater earthly example of agape love than, of course, mothers. My goodness, selfless, the selfless love of many mothers. We had a, uh, our guys' current group the other night, I think it was two weeks ago, where, uh, you know, we always start those things with banter. If we get guys together, you start talking and all that sort of thing. But a couple of, of the dads in the room at, at one point just kind of said, you know what, Mo we're thinking about Mother's Day coming up. You know what, at the end of the day, Father's Day is great. We need to appreciate the guys, and hey, we're all for that. But we can concede Mother's Day is really where it's at. That's the important one by a factor of like 10. Moms are like only 10. You're probably right. Not only 10. Well, that's what we conceded, okay? That's all as we were preparing for, uh, for Mother's Day and celebrating. There's just something we understand at the heart level. My goodness, when it comes to selfless love, that many mothers embody this so much, um, this agape love. My mom is so incredibly selfless in her love. So yesterday she came down and to see Caleb's t-ball game. We were going to celebrate, go to brunch afterwards. And we're like, okay, hey, where do you want to go to lunch? Uh, where do you want to go to brunch? And she said, David, oh, you choose. And I said, okay, no, 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 you choose. This is Mother's Day. You choose. That's the whole point. Well, David, just give me some restaurants that you like, and I'll choose from that. Just like, that's my mom. Like, that's just all the time. Um, growing up, so I'm, I'm one of six kids. Okay, if that doesn't tell you enough about my mom already, there's agape love for itself. My, my mom carried seven and uh, raised six. Uh, a story that I don't often share is my, my oldest brother uh, was born prematurely a few months and uh, didn't make it. This is, this is a few generations back where the technology isn't where it is today. Even still, it would have been, it would have been pretty, pretty scary for them. Um, didn't make it. Actually, my, my, my son, is at his middle name, Jonathan, is named after my oldest brother. Um, and uh, anyway, she, she, uh, she decided then, she's like, you know what? And my dad was telling me this. She's like, your mom's amazing. She's like, you know what? It's really interesting to me. There's a family friend who I'll talk a little bit more here in a second to kind of resolve this story. She, at the same time as my mom, actually had the same thing happen. So they both went through some really hard things, right? But she, on her, on her, or she said, that was just too hard. I can't do it. Um, to, to, to recognize this amazing woman, her, her name's Marta. I remember her every Mother's Day because she's like a second mom to me. She said, I, I can't go through that again, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dedicate my life to raising up these ones that my mom decided as a second, like a mother to them. And so I remember Marta Gentry every, every year. So she's an amazing woman, uh, selfless in her own right. Uh, my mom decided to raise uh, six kids. You understand all the implications of agape love even there uh, in Berkeley of all places. Um, she, but, but, in, in, but beyond the implications of just raising six kids, she, together with my, my dad, uh, started two churches, um, just you know, going after what, they, what she felt was God's work. I mean, that's my mom. That's agape love. My dad always used to joke around that, you know, there's a special place in heaven, a mansion in heaven for my mom uh, when we get there. And I, I, I tend to agree with it. Agape love is selfless, self-sacrificing uh, love for the other. But here is what is absolutely crazy to me, church family. This is not a text that's written only about moms. This is not a text only supposed to be read at weddings. It's a letter written by a guy to a church for how Christ followers are supposed to love those in their lives. Agape love. It's like, ooh. Uh, it starts to open it up a little bit. It starts to make it a little bit challenging, but it also shows us the beauty of what uh, God calls us into. So let's look into it, and we'll go through these quickly. Um, 
the first three verses, here's the heading I want to give us, is uh, we see the importance of love. We see in the first three verses the importance of love. Here's the context before we kind of look at the verses. Uh, the context is Paul was writing to a church in Corinth. That's modern-day Greece. And this church had a slew of problems. I mean, they had so many problems. Um, and, and Paul w w wrote to them actually a lot of times, many of which a couple of the letters we don't even have in our Bible because uh, he just wrote them so much, trying to help them deal with those problems. Their culture was just one of toxicity. Toxicity. Is that right? Uh, it, was, it was really unhealthy. They had so many things. Well, at this point in the letter, chapters 12, 13 that we're looking at today, and chapter 14, Paul's talk, uh, he's, he's dealing with a particular issue, and that is what I'll label the issue of, like, competition. They have a spirit of competition. Like, they are constantly trying to one-up each other, puff their chest out, and say, ooh, look, I'm more spiritual than you. Now, keep in mind, this is the first century church. We have that going on in today's church, but in the very beginning of all churches, you got to figure, a lot of these people were like, I'm trying to figure this out. Oh, I'm more holy than you, and all that sort of thing. More specifically, Paul is dealing with the, the spirit of competition, competition when it, it comes to spiritual gifts. Now, what are spiritual gifts? Real quickly, because it shows up in our text. Spiritual gifts are God-given gifts for, that, that we get in order to bless and build up others. So there's a spiritual gift of encouragement, for instance. There's a spiritual gift of leadership. Of, of administration and so on and so forth. We're supposed to use things for, for, for others. Well, in that Corinthian church, there were two spiritual gifts in particular that everybody's like, ooh, I've got this one. You don't. Um, they're ones that we probably don't relate to as much today, uh, but they were the gifts of uh, speaking in tongues and of prophecy. Now, real quickly, speaking in tongues, a lot of scholars uh, are, try, are really divided on figuring out what that actually means. It's not the scope of the sermon, but they ask, was that speaking gift of tongues, like speaking in another intelligible language, another foreign language that they didn't know somehow miraculously? Or was it a, a, a language that pe the speaker spoke in order to have an intimate uh, uh, connection with God? What scholars will, tell, ex uh, scholars will call ecstatic utterances. Getting a little more theological than I want to. But the, the point I'm trying to make is whatever that means, Paul is saying you guys can't say, hey, I've got this gift of speaking in tongues or I've got this gift of knowledge, of prophecy, and you don't. Because the minute you do that, if it doesn't have love, his point here is it's useless. His point here is you can do wonderful things, good things, God-given things, and if it doesn't have love, it is useless. Okay, so now we'll look at the text. If I speak, verse 1, in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, Andrew, our drummer, plays the, the cymbals really well. Um, when we, uh, but it's funny. If, if, if you hit the cymbal wrong, uh, it's, it's not a pleasant sound. I'm one of those people where if I'm in, like, a public setting and there's just cacophonous noise, like those guys are screaming over there, yelling over here, and, you know, kids are running. I just start to go, I start to like get really sensitive and I can't hear it. I almost wonder if what Paul is saying is like we're a resounding gong, we're a, a clashing cymbal. It's like we're becoming obnoxious or offensive. Can you think of anyone, don't put a name to it, in your life or in the public sphere that maybe they're doing good things for the most part, but it's coming across offensively? Is that love? Paul would challenge that. Um, verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, actually that word is to the flames, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. If there's something in the Bible that God cares about, I don't care if you've read it or not, it's taking care of the poor 
or let's say it's being martyred for the faith. Like those are things that are pretty important, wouldn't you say? And yet what Paul is saying here is if you don't do that, you gain, if you, if you do that without love, it's as if you're gaining nothing in the eyes of eternity as, as God sees it. To think about it more in our terms, I don't know. Hopefully we're not facing any martyrdom anytime soon. Like we, we do wonderful things. We go to the church. We help the poor. We, we say our prayers. We Paul is saying if we have love, if we don't have love in there, we, we can gain, we gain nothing. And the most striking to me is verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Those are striking words. I am nothing. He's saying if there's no love, there's nothing of real value in the service to others. We may be successful. We may, be, we may get results. We may be admired, appreciated, applauded. But as far as God and eternity are concerned, Paul's saying we are nothing. God cares that much about agape love. Uh, it's that important. Have, have you ever been doing something that is for the sake of others? It's a loving thing that you're doing for someone. Maybe it's a significant other. Maybe it's a roommate. You're doing a loving thing, but you're going through the motions and doing that thing, but underneath you're like seething a little bit. You've got like resentment in you. I don't know why, but I think of doing the dishes. Have you ever done the dishes where you're like, doing, I'm doing this loving thing, I'm doing the dishes, but you're, you're stewing while you do it, right? What happens when you do that? Well, the dishes start to clang a little bit more. <laughs> Boy, this is resonating with folks, okay? So the dishes start to clang a little bit more. The cabinets hit a little bit harder, and it's like, I hope they heard that, but you don't feel that. You don't think that consciously, but subconsciously. You know what I'm saying? Or later on, what happens? You know, the argue, an argument sp sprouts up, and what is it? I did the dishes. Was that a... Net, net, was that a loving result, like, you know, doing the dishes? I, you know, God cares so much about the love, our heart behind it. Um, it's, it's that important. Why? Because the love, our heart and this love is the wellspring for doing good things that are actually going to be good. Jesus used to get livid with the religious folks. It's interesting. Jesus is normally kind, gentle, but he would really get going with the religious leaders, the people who were supposed to know better. The guys who were called the Pharisees at that time. He would often call them, you whitewashed tombs. Like you guys are clean on the outside, but dead on the inside. These guys were killing it in terms of doing wonderful things for God. They were doing alms, they were serving the poor, they were doing, they were doing all the religious things. They were, they, they, were, they were killing it, but Jesus said, you whitewashed tombs. Why? Because people would look at their example and say, okay, they're doing everything right in the service, but there's something not there. You know what I'm saying? Versus, uh, you know, I was talking to a pastor friend uh, this week, and he went to some conference where this incredible gal was uh, speaking, and I didn't, I didn't catch the name. I'm not sure he even, even shared the name of this gal who was speaking, but she's basically known within the circle that this, this big conference was happening as kind of like a Mother Teresa-type person of the faith, like, like a, a real strong Christian woman who just gives her life for others. And he was, he was describing how when they introduced her in that conference, they said, this great woman of God, so-and-so. And everybody got on their feet and were, were clapping. And he said an incredible thing happened is he lost sight of her. Like, you know, he had to kind of like look past the folks in the crowd to see that she was kneeling down. And he was like, it was clear what she was doing. Like, as they were all applauding her as this wonderful, she was kneeling down and saying, God, this is about you, not about and I thought about that. I was just like, my goodness. Here are the Pharisees who did everything right. They were probably like Mother Teresa in terms of good deeds. They were amazing. But, and yet, you know, 
anybody at that time would have been like, oh, that's just Jenny. There's nothing there. That's not good. Good things? Wait. No. But then there's this woman here who's like, really? And my pastor friend is still talking about her a couple days later. Here I am sharing. There's a power there. There's a love there. There's, there's, there's something important happening at the heart level. Um, just to think about this real practically, what does that mean for us? I, I, I think it has to mean we, we need to do a heart check. You know, if I'm doing the dishes and I'm seething, it's probably just as good that I, you know, that while I continue doing the dishes, I start thinking about my heart. Does that make sense? Or last week I talked about how I'm learning to, to be a better listener for Cindy. You know, if I'm just, I am creating the space so that you can talk, but I'm not sort of listening or I'm, we all know that's disaster waiting to happen. I need to be listening, engaging, asking questions. Uh, the heart, this agape love from the, from the, from the center is, is that important. That's the importance of love. And then we see the nature of love, verses 4 through 8, what it's like. So he says, love is patient, love is kind. And he goes down this list of beautiful things, uh, beautiful uh, language. Uh, here's what we see in terms of all these, these words, uh, the, the, these sentences. Um, in recap language, so going back to our second sermon of the series, those of you guys who are here, uh, what he's saying is love must be intentional. These are, all these are action words. He's saying this is what love is is. This is what love is not. This is what love does. This is what love does not. It's all these sorts of things. Love is intentional. That's recap language. Here's how I want to think about it today. The love God ultimately desires in us is not so much about feelings as it is about choice. Uh, the love that God ultimately desires in us is not so much about feelings as it is about choice. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast. It is not proud. Beautiful language kind of language we'd love to put on our walls. But let me ask the straightforward question, why would Paul write these words? They're beautiful, they're wonderful. Why would he write them? It seems to me he would write them because at the end of the day, these aren't our heart's inclination to do these things. Um, boy, if my feelings really get going, I tend to be impatient and unkind. Um, I, I believe what Paul is saying here is that you know, love, verse 5, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. He's saying this love takes discipline. It takes a choice to get over self. We've, we've got to choose to put others before us, ourselves. I remember going through premarital counseling uh, with, with Cindy uh, a while back now. We're coming up on 10 years. Boy, time, time flies. Uh, but we were going through premarital counseling with a pastor uh, getting ready uh, to get married. And I was like most couples, and you've heard me laugh about this up from the stage. I was just not hearing much of what he was sharing. But, ooh, we're getting married, you know, wedding. But anyways, I remember one thing that really sticks out to me from that, from one of those sessions, was he, he, he got really practical with a point that he was trying to make. He said, okay, guys, help me work through on a given week, how are you going to choose what to eat? Where are you, when you go out to eat, what, where, how are you going to decide the restaurant? And I shot back, oh, I'm going to let Cindy choose. And he kind of looked at me like, really? <laughs> it's like, all right, we got to work on this dude. we got to help him bring, 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 bring some reality into his life. He said, what if Cindy's dietary, you know, needs shift over time? What if, uh, you know, uh, she just really wants something that you don't want that night? I said, I'll let her choose. Okay. What if you come home late from work and you just, boy, it's been a long day. And you really want, I know you don't eat healthy, David. I, you know me personally. He's like, and you really want that hamburger. Like, what then? Let Cindy choose. You know, it's just kind of like, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I can't be. And I just, I, I understood the point he was making, okay? Uh, and it was a trivial example, uh, let alone when you start to think about this in, in bigger levels. 
Love is a choice. Love is a choice. It's not just like our feelings are just saying, hey, I'm going to, yeah. It's, 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 it's a choice. We have to choose to love. Um, verse 7, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It's always, for those of you who are coming four times, um, that word is actually literally all things. It's in all things. Protect, trust. So it's like always, only, ever, like um, be these things, love in this way. Now, a quick pastoral sidebar. We've talked about this throughout the series. This is not to say if there's something uh, abusive in a relationship happening that Paul's saying, go ahead and just stay like that. Or, for instance, there are like uh, destructive habits happening. That's not the scope of what he's talking about here. If that's the case, there's, you know, healthy habits need to be established. In fact, if you look at verse uh, 6, it says, love does not delight in the evil, in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It wouldn't be loving, even selfless love, to just be a punching bag if things are unhealthy or abusive or something like that. But, that, but ha- having said that, Paul is saying love is always in all things trying to look out for the best of the other. There's no better example than wedding vows, Okay. We, you know, traditional wedding vows is a, a promising to love the other through rich, through richer, for poor, for in sickness and in health. It's not saying in sickness and health when it makes sense for me and my schedule, or it's not hard, or in rich in, or for poor, provided you don't become bankrupt or you lose your job. You mean you you know that this is this is agape type love, but it's not. And granted, there are, each relationships have different relational uh, uh, dynamics happening. Uh, these are that's agape love right there that we should extend to others uh, as it makes sense within a given relationship. Um, for if it's if that's hard to do for partners in marriage, boy, that's gonna be hard to do for one another. I uh, listen to how one 16th century pastor put it: "You must have fervent agape love towards the saints, towards towards fellow believers in your church. But you will find very much about the best of them, which will try your patience." For, like yourself, they are imperfect, and they will not always turn their best side towards you, but sometimes, sadly, exhibit their infirmities. Be prepared, therefore, to contend with all things in them. And as if Paul had to summarize this thought or dig down any deeper, drive it down any further, he says in verse 8, love never fails. Last thought before pulling it all together, the permanence of love, and we'll go through this one even more quickly. Verse 8, I'll read this. Love never fails, but where there are prophets, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What Paul is saying is love, at the end of the day, is the only thing here that's going to last forever. It's going to last into eternity. If you're a person of faith and you, and you uh, receive that, what he's saying is this love is the only thing that will last into eternity. Knowledge. Is the gift of knowledge is not going to be there because we will all know, he's saying. Even these important qualities like faith and hope, which are important not only to the Christian but everybody, uh, they too will fade. Faith in the next life will no longer be needed. He talks about this mirror. You, of course, know that, that today's mirrors are, are way, way better than what they were back then, which was essentially polished metal. 
Uh, so that what Paul is working with, the illustration is like looking at a, a sheet of metal that you can kind of see a distorted. He says, it's gonna be so, we're going to see clearly. We're going to see the one who loves us perfectly, even as he knows us perfectly. In other words, he's saying, this is what heaven's all about. You know, heaven is, is precious to Christians for so many reasons. It's precious to the Christian for they look forward to seeing loved ones who have passed away. They get to reunite. Uh, it's, it, heaven is precious to the Christian because they get to see great men and women of God of, of centuries past. Or it's great because of walking the streets of gold, the pearly, all that sort of stuff, pain being taken care of, tears being wiped away. However, none of these really make heaven what heaven really is. What makes heaven really heaven is the unhindered, unrestricted restricted presence of Jesus, of our Lord. And to know just as I am known, as Paul puts it, uh, we, will be the greatest experience of the eternal existence. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is agape, love. What do we do with this? What do we do with this series? What do we, ha- you know, as we kind of recap it and just kind of thinking about it, uh, how do we, what do we go, uh, what do we take away from this? It seems to me to ask the question, where's our focus? You know, where's our life focus? I think th- these words speak into that. Where are, are, where's our focus in relationships? Because what he's saying is, wh- is if, 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 it, if, our, if our focus is missing out on these three things, faith, hope, and especially love, then we're missing out on what God is saying is the most important. Is loving others a driving force for you? Uh, you know, it's interesting. You can do this little litmus test. I don't encourage you to do it right now, at least out loud. I tried doing it, and I started to cringe. But you can replace your name for the word love in this test and see how it goes. I will just give you a case of it just so we're all understanding what I'm talking about. You could say, instead of love is patient, you say, David is patient. David is kind. I will stop now. Um, but you see where I am going there. You, if you do that later, it's, it'll be, it's, it's a fascinating exercise. I'll say it that way. Because it'll really help you see, boy, where are you cringing when you read that? Where are you in humility? Like, okay. But where is it just like, whoa, I'm far-fetched here. And if you want to really get practical with it, you can think about it in terms of your a particular relationship. Where are you patient? Where, and, and so on and so forth. But here's the best thing. Here's the best thing about this text all the texts. We've talked about this. This is ultimately this beautiful scripture is not about you or me. It very much is a calling for us to step into this, to grow in our love for the others. But let's be real. Love never fails. I'm going to mess that up in an hour. Not intentionally. And a couple more times in the end of this day. Okay? It's hard. It's a challenge. But as we grow into it, we can rely on God's goodness helping us in that as we strive for it. Why? Because this is his love for us. This agape love that needed to be said in this way so we finally understand who God is in terms of his love. Um, And so I want to end reading this text in the perspective of what Jesus has done for us because then you see even more beautifully what this is. These are words worth framing. Um, But actually, first, first John 419 says we love because God first loved, agape loved us. Let me close with these words. Jesus was patient. He was kind. He was not envious. He did not boast. He was not proud. He was not rude. He was not self-seeking. He was not easily angered. He kept no record of wrong. Indeed, he himself forgave and made it possible for our sins to be forgiven with the shed of, of his blood on the cross. 
Jesus did not delight in evil, but rejoiced in the truth. He always protects, always believes the best of us, always hopes for our best, always perseveres. Church family, this is how God loved us. If this is how he loved us, let us love in the same way. Let's pray. Father, what beautiful language here. What challenging language. Uh, Lord, would you help us grow in it as a, as, as a church, as a church family, in our relationships uh, with our significant others, with, with uh, our roommate, whatever, you know, in the workplace. Would you help us to grow in love in all of these ways that we've been talking about over the last few weeks, and especially with selfless love. But we recognize how hard it is. We confess how hard it is. Lord, we mess up far more often than we, we would like to admit but we're so thankful that at the end of the day, this beautiful scripture is not ultimately about what we're able to achieve this, this side of heaven, but what you have achieved for us. And so, Lord, out of this love, would you help us to love others? Would you help us grow in this? Would you help us strive towards this? Would there be a beauty and a power that comes out of this that is the love of Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name.